And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Joshua. <clears throat> and while you're turning there, I, I want to thank uh, Andrea. There, there are some goodies in the back that she um, graciously put together. These are for the kids, in, in, I guess in recognition of back to school and kind of in celebration of that, even though kids, you may not be celebrating that. But... Uh, You'll celebrate having, you know, some of those goodies back there, but you're going to have to wait till the sermon is done, and then you can have it, and be sure to share some with your parents uh, as well. All right, we're in the book of Joshua. If you're unfamiliar with Joshua, you'll find it near the beginning of your Bible, right after the, the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, there are different genres of writing in the Bible, whether that be law or prophetic writings or poetry. And the genre we find ourselves in for this new sermon series is historical narrative. I know some of you love history, others of you not so much. Uh, You think it's dry and boring and irrelevant, and while that might be true of some history, it's never true of the historical narratives in the Bible. Uh, In addition to all the epic drama and action and conflicts that we have in the book of Joshua, we are more importantly told by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So let us for the next several weeks approach this book with a sense of eager anticipation and expecting that God will richly bless the reading and the hearing and the putting into practice of His holy and inspired Word. Now, the book of Joshua isn't meant to be read in isolation from the rest of the Bible. Really, no Scripture is is meant to be read that way. Uh, Every part of the Bible hangs together and is connected and is part of a bigger narrative that's telling an incredible story of God's plan to save the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, to to, um, get us ready for an exposition of the book of Joshua, I think it'll be helpful for us this morning to take a step back and consider where Joshua stands in relationship to the larger Bible story by considering one of its major themes and seeing how this theme weaves its way throughout all of Scripture and how it connects to Christ's story and and then to your story. Uh, So so this is going to be more of a topical sermon, which is not normally how we do our messages here at Harbin's. We normally focus on just one Scripture at a time, but, but I hope today is going to help you to understand and appreciate Joshua even more, and that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, you might have hope. So with that said, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. We're going to read Joshua chapter 1. We won't get into a fuller exposition of this chapter until next week, but to get our heads in Joshua, in this story, we're going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 1. Word of the Lord says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised to Moses. 
from the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise." And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you commanded him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the Word of God this morning as we look at many, many scriptures that weave together a a beautiful story of what you were doing in the universe. I pray that through the scriptures we might receive encouragement and hope this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. George Bernard Shaw, the playwright, political activist, and atheist who lived in the first half of the 20th century uh, said that heaven, as conventionally conceived, is a place so dull, so useless, so miserable that no one has ever ventured to describe a whole day in heaven, though plenty of people have described a day at the seashore. I think he was right. I think sometimes even Christians are guilty of such conceptions of heaven. Sometimes we, while giving lip service to heaven, seem to be more excited about the here and now, uh, about the opening weekend of the NFL, or the holidays just around the corner, or lunch right after church. In fact, I've even had some Christians confide to me that they are somewhat afraid of heaven. Heaven. 
because they think that it might be a bit on the dull side. And the dullness of heaven is reinforced by notions that well, we're going to be uh, ethereal, ghost-like spirits just kind of floating around, drifting on clouds for eternity, playing harps, and I'll be honest, that does not excite me either. It all seems so unreal and dreamlike and, well, frankly, boring and very unbiblical. Uh, the Scriptures paint a much different picture for the future of God's people. If you're a child of God, your final destination is not floating on a cloud. That brings many of you some great relief right now. Uh, the future, your final destination is living in a land uh, with your feet firmly planted on the ground, on this very planet. And the book of Joshua is a picture pointing us to that reality. Uh, Joshua asks and answers two big questions. It's not the only questions and answers that the book of Joshua gives, but here's two big ones. One, what has God promised? And two, how will it come to pass? And those questions will form the basis of my two points for this sermon this morning. So, first, what has God promised? Answer, God's land for God's people to enjoy God's rest. One of the big themes in the book of Joshua is his leadership over the Israelites and bringing the people into the land of Canaan to possess it as a gift given to them by God. They're to conquer and drive out the people that are living there. They're to settle there, and they are to experience rest in the land. Now, the theme of God's people at rest in a good and abundant land, <clears throat> that's a reoccurring motif in the Bible, beginning in the book of Genesis. And you can turn there with me now, way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, in the early portions of Genesis… Uh, we find the story of how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, which is just another way of saying that God created everything. He did it all in six days. And, and look at what it says in Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God rested. What does that mean? It does not mean that he was so wiped out from making everything that he had to take a nap. Instead, rest carries the idea of God delighting and enjoying and celebrating the completed work of his hands, a, a work that included not only making the universe, but also making the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he places Adam and Eve in a good and abundant land called Eden. Eden in the Hebrew connotes the idea of delight or pleasure, and it was a perfect and complete paradise. It was safe and secure. It was abundant in food and provision. And indeed, the garden seems to be a prototypical temple, and Adam was more than a gardener. He was a guardian, serving in a priestly role, overseeing the garden temple where he and his wife were to be uh, fruitful and multiply and fill the land. And, and so, as the garden temple expands, the land would be tamed, the whole earth would be theirs, and the whole earth would be full of the glory of God. And like a temple, 
It was in the garden that the presence of God was manifested in a special way. And Adam and Eve could commune with God and enjoy his friendship daily. Indeed, fellowship with God would be uh, the, it would have been the very best thing about the garden. I think about Psalm 16 that says that in the presence of God is fullness of joy and, and is at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so you can imagine the extreme joy and delight that Adam and Eve experienced. Uh, God in his grace had permitted Adam and Eve to enter into God's rest, uh, celebrating and delighting in God and in his works and enjoying all the peace and joy and satisfaction and security that came with it. They had entered into the rest of God. However, there was an evil invader in the garden, the serpent, also known as the devil, and he tempted the man and the woman to distrust and betray God, and even though God warned them that to sin against him would bring death, they nevertheless did what was right in their own eyes, and their treasonous sin against God plunged the world into death, and, and, and a deep soul restlessness that comes from a severed relationship with God. Now, while God graciously promised to one day crush the serpent and make all things new, in the meantime, as a consequence of their sin, Adam and Eve are banished from God's place. They are exiled from the good land, and they're sent into a harsh land full of corruption and hardship and decay. Uh, They were, in essence, expelled from God's rest. Indeed, if you recall, Adam and Eve's son Cain Uh, He, in his sin, was cursed with being a restless wanderer. And that reflects the state of all of humanity. We've all followed in Adam's rebellious footsteps and have experienced the same punishment. Banishment from the land, restless at heart, under God's wrath and condemnation for sin, and at the end of our restless wanderings, death. It's a bleak picture, but it's not the end of the story. It's interesting, as you follow the Bible story and you get to uh, Genesis chapter 5, it brings about the, uh, the, the birth of a, a child named Noah, and that name means rest. And there was, a, I think, a hopeful expectation that, that maybe this one would bring the rest that God has promised. But if you go over a few more pages to Genesis chapter 12, because Noah didn't bring the rest, you go to chapter 12. Uh, we discover God in His kindness and mercy deemed it good to bring redemption to lost humanity uh, through a man named Abraham. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1, it says, God said to Abram, go now uh, from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, there it is, land, that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it is in this promise that God reveals his intention to once again have a special people who will dwell in a special land, that their exile from paradise due to their sin would not last forever, and that people from all the families of the earth would be brought back into the blessing of God that was lost in Eden. And as you keep following the story, it seems like, well, things may be moving in the right direction. Abraham moves to the land that God promised called Canaan, 
And in spite of several threats to God's promise, including Abraham and Sarah's own disobedience, God remains faithful. And and he gives this elderly couple the supernatural power to have offspring. And his name is Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, and his name is changed to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons. But once again, there is a threat to the promises as a severe life-threatening famine hits the land, putting Israel's family in danger. But once again, God is faithful. And through a series of miraculous providences, God provides for Abraham's offspring and relocates the family to Egypt where there is abundant food. But they're now outside of the land of promise. Things take an even darker turn when we move into the book of Exodus and see perhaps the biggest threat so far to the promises of God. Because while on the one hand, as the generations pass, Abraham's family, the people of Israel, get bigger and bigger, and and it seems like God's promise to Abraham is, is coming true about becoming a great nation, on the other hand, their Egyptian hosts see these hundreds of thousands of guests as a great opportunity for slave labor. And so the children of Israel remain in brutal, violent, abusive slavery in Egypt for roughly 400 years. And Israel is a nation without a land. And the oppression is so harsh. The very life of the nation is on the line. And, And it is during this time of slavery that an Israelite named Nun, N U N, Nun, fathers a son and names him Hosea, which means salvation which likely reflects his hope that perhaps Hosea's generation would at long last enjoy the rest that God had promised. Little did he realize that God was already at work to bring about that salvation because God is faithful. Because another Israelite child had been born and his name was Moses. You can turn with me to the next book of the Bible after Genesis. It's the book of Exodus. And And it's chapter 3, and it's here where God chooses Moses to be Israel's leader, God's prophet, and the one uh, that God would use to deliver Israel from bondage. And you can look at what God says to Moses in verse 7 of chapter 3. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to, here it is, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So there it is again, the promise of a good land He says it's flowing with milk and honey. That's just a metaphor. That means it's going to be rich and prosperous and abundant with all the provision you need like Eden. And so the faithful God has remembered his promise. And as you follow Exodus, you see God through a series of amazing miracles defeat the Egyptians and their evil king, redeeming Israel out of slavery and taking them on a journey back to Canaan, back to the promised land. And among the hundreds of thousands of slaves marching out of Egypt is none other than Hosea, who ends up becoming Moses' faithful assistant and a successful general in the Israeli army. Indeed, Moses changes Hosea's name to Joshua, uh, changing it from salvation, which is kind of generic, to something more specific and true that that Yahweh saves, that the Lord saves, He brings salvation. 
On their way to Canaan, the Israelites stop at Mount Sinai where Moses would receive the Ten Commandments and the rest of God's law for this newly formed nation of Israel. And Joshua accompanies Moses partway up the mountain for this incredible event. And one of the Ten Commandments Moses receives has to do with rest. He tells Israel, for six days you'll work, and on the seventh you rest. Uh, you, are, uh, you are no longer slaves made for Pharaoh, slaving for him in his land. Uh, you're now God's people made to enjoy God's rest in my land. And the Sabbath would be a reminder of that, pointing them to a greater rest to come. Turn with me now a couple of more books ahead to Numbers. So it's Exodus and then Leviticus followed by Numbers and go to chapter 14. On their way to the promised land, Israel falls into grumbling and complaining. They do this a lot. They don't trust God. They constantly fear starvation in the wilderness. They even declare that they'd rather be slaves again in Egypt because at least I know there I'm going to get some food. And yet God is faithful and continues to graciously provide for them. And when they reach the borders of the promised land, uh, the next task was to go into it and defeat the Canaanites who grew strong in that land while they were in Egypt. Now, the Canaanites were a cruel and evil people. Uh, well, we'll talk more about them as we get deeper into this series in Joshua. But uh, they were even sacrificing their own children to their gods. Uh, they were brutal. They were strong warriors. But God intended Israel to be a means of punishing the Canaanites and driving them out of the land. And so at the edge of the promised land, on the eve of their invasion, Israel sends 12 spies into Canaan on a reconnaissance mission. Ten of the spies freak out over what they saw, and they say, we're doomed. Uh, we can't go in there. The cities are big and powerful and fortified. The people are enormous and powerful. They're huge. They'll destroy us. But two of the spies give a different report. If you're in Numbers 14, you can look there with me, starting at verse 6. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. That's a sign of grief and frustration there. Tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. In other words, we're going to eat them alive. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So, it's pretty cool. Joshua here has fully embraced what his name means. It doesn't matter how great our enemies are or how weak we are. It's the Lord who saves. It's the Lord who gives the victory. It's God who is faithful. He's the difference maker. And, and with God, we can do this. But the people refuse to listen. And the patience of God finally comes to an end. And in his judgment, God declares that except for Joshua and Caleb... None of that generation of Israel will enter into and enjoy God's rest in the promised land. They will instead wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all die out. Uh, much later on, God, speaking through the psalmist, says that for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their hearts 
and they have not known my ways, therefore I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, like Adam, they are shut out from God's rest. That's the punishment for their sin. And this unbelieving generation of Israelites is to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until they all die. Like Cain, they are to be restless wanderers outside of the land, never enjoying the peace in the land that could have been theirs if they had but trusted God. And that brings us to the book of Joshua. Turn with me there. Joshua opens up in the wake of the previous unbelieving generation of Israelites dying out and Moses himself dying. And this new generation is now, like their fathers, standing on the brink, on the edge of the promised land. They've come full circle. And so the question is, what will they do? Verse 1 says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Notice the faithfulness of God. Though, though Israel has been constantly faithless, none of it deters God from doing what he has said. Look at verse 3. Again, he says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised Moses. So, the basis for Israel entering the land will not ultimately be rooted in the worthiness of Israel, but in God's faithfulness to keep his promises for the future. God is still determined. He's still determined after all of this to have a people for himself in a good and abundant land enjoying God's rest. Look down at verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And so the book of Joshua is all about this this promise of God's land for God's people to enjoy God's rest. But the book of Joshua also is written to answer another question. How will this happen? How will God's sinful, flawed, weak unworthy people enter into God's rest, and the answer is through God's people following God's man. And God's man in this book is Joshua. And in chapter 1, we learn that God's man will constantly have the presence of God with him. Uh, You see that in verse 5. God's man is to be strong and courageous, verse 6. Uh, obedient to the law, verse 7. He's to be a man who loves the, the, the word, the law of God, having it deep in his heart, constantly meditating on it, verse 8. He'll lead the people into God's rest, verses 13 and 15. Uh, and he'll do that if the, if the people will but trust and obey him, verse 18. And over the next few weeks as we study Joshua, we'll see this play out as Joshua in the face of insurmountable obstacles, fearsome enemies, and even the faithlessness Uh, from his own people, will nevertheless successfully lead his people into the land to claim it and dwell in it, proving that God is faithful, proving that God saves. In fact, when you get to the end of the book of Joshua, we're told in Joshua 23 that the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. And, And so it seems like perhaps this book will have a happy ending. And for the most part, it does. But there is a tinge of darkness. 
not all of the Canaanites have been driven from the land. And the people are warned that if they break faith with God, they will not be able to drive them out. And what's more, in chapter 24, in spite of their insistence that they will continue to be faithful to God, Joshua seems to anticipate that one day they actually will turn against God as their forefathers did, uh, even as Adam did, repeating the pattern of restless human rebellion that's gone on from the very beginning. The next book of the Bible is Judges, and there we immediately see Israel's downward spiral after Joshua dies. They do not complete the mission to drive out the Canaanites and fully possess the land. They fall into sin. They fall into disobedience, doing what is right in their own eyes. And the rest that they enjoyed in the land turns into weariness as they are once again oppressed by other people. And and whenever God sends a deliverer to save them, Israel's relief and rest is always short-lived as they go right back into rebellion and they start the cycle all over again. And, And the time of rest that they enjoyed in the land under Joshua quickly recedes in the rearview mirror. Joshua was unable to secure a permanent rest for the people of God. But later on, In the Bible story, Israel experiences a reprieve as God raises up a great king named David who beats back all of the surrounding enemies. And after years of war and conflict, David emerges victorious. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. David, during his reign, wrote a worship song, and in it he declares that the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, it's interesting because when David wrote that, he was already in the land, uh, already experiencing a measure of God's blessing and rest, and and yet in Psalm 37, if you're paying attention, uh, David is clearly speaking in eschatological end times terms where uh, the wicked will face judgment, but the meek, the humble, will inherit a good and peaceful and abundant land full of delight. The the description here is is idyllic. It, it sounds a lot like Eden. So David seems to be looking forward to an even greater rest to be experienced by the people of God. And it seems like that fulfillment is close to happening when David's son Solomon takes the throne. And and Solomon says in in 1 Kings chapter 5 verse 4, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversity nor misfortune. That's another way of saying there is peace and safety and security. Indeed, under Solomon, we will find Israel at her zenith in regards to power and wealth and abundance. It's a golden age. And it is during this time where the temple is finally constructed and the presence of God comes there to dwell in the temple in a special way. And and we see in all of this faint echoes of the Garden of Eden. And we are led to wonder if Perhaps we're now finally on the road to a return to paradise. But, you guessed it, as the story unfolds, we're let down again. Solomon cannot secure ultimate rest for the people as he himself descends into sinful restlessness in his own soul. Uh, So while we keep seeing glimpses of rest and peace in the land experienced by God's people, it's always short-lived. And it's never even close to the paradise that we saw in Eden. There's still sin and there's still death. 
In the generations after Solomon, the kings of Israel and her people spiral ever downward into ever-increasing rebellion and and restless debauchery and idolatry, and and eventually God sends in enemy nations to defeat them and oppress them. As he promised, he said this would happen, and reminiscent of Adam and Eve, the people are expelled. They are exiled. They are banished from the land. They are cut off from God's rest. And it seems now that the promises of God are in more jeopardy than ever before. But nonetheless, God is faithful to keep His promises. In fact, right before God's judgment came through the exile, God nevertheless said through the prophet Isaiah, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And there's other scriptures like that, that that hold out hope for a final rest for the people of God in a good and abundant land. And eventually, as you follow the Bible story, you get to the New Testament, and the author of Hebrews tells us something that by now we should already suspect. He quotes Psalm 95. We read it earlier. Uh, It's the psalm that we looked at that described God forbidding the people to enter His rest because of unbelief and hard hearts. And, And what's interesting there is that the psalmist then urges his audience who's living hundreds of years after Moses and Joshua to not harden their hearts, like that first generation of Israelites, not to be shut out of God's rest. And the author of Hebrews astutely picks up on this. And he says in in Hebrews chapter 4, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And so again, the The hope for rest is held out to us. Joshua never gave them rest, not ultimately, and neither did David or Solomon. All of the little moments of rest we see in the Old Testament were never meant to be the final rest for God's people. There there was still a Sabbath rest remaining. And so enters the climax of human history, the Lord Jesus Christ, greater than David, greater than Solomon, Jesus, whose name, by the way, is another form of Joshua. It it too means Yahweh saves, the the Lord saves, and, and Jesus is the true and greater Joshua. Jesus is the only one who can live up to the meaning of that name, because Jesus is Yahweh. He is God the Son. He is the one who saves. And he came to earth as a man, strong and courageous, perfectly obedient to God the Father, loving the law of the Lord because the law was always in his heart and he meditated on it day and night. Not only was the presence of God with him, but in him was the fullness of deity. And when he came, he extended a glorious invitation that weary mankind has longed for for thousands of years. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest that we desperately desire, that we've been trying to achieve since Eden, it's only found in Jesus And so to reject Jesus is to reject that rest. To reject Jesus is to be like that generation of Israelites who did not trust God and therefore could not enter into and enjoy God's rest. 
if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, you can try to find rest for your soul in any other thing, whether that be in material possessions or in earthly relationships or in your career or your family or sinful pleasures. And if you've been trying to to do that, you know, if you're honest with yourself, uh, that those things aren't reliable. Uh, Those things will not last and they will never touch the deepest needs of your soul. You know this, and you're living a lie. And if you continue to reject Jesus' gracious invitation of rest in Him, then you'll be forever denied it in hell, which is the final exile the final banishment from the rest that God so kindly offers. Just as some downplay and distort heaven, people also downplay and distort hell. Uh, Some act like hell will be a party. Uh, Hey, all my friends are going to be in hell. It'll be awesome. Uh, Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, some say. That's not hell. There are no friends. There is no party. You're not reigning over anything. Revelation 14 gives us a chilling picture of the final judgment for all who would continue to rebel against God. It says, He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, no rest, day or night. I think that fire and sulfur is metaphorical language, um, vivid poetic imagery designed to help us comprehend something that is hard for us to comprehend. Notice there that the final judgment is eternal restlessness. They have no rest day or night. There there will be this eternal sense of not being at peace, never being satisfied. The, The restlessness that people experience today will be amplified to the nth degree in hell, and the torment of it is so intense that it is like being on fire forever. If you're here this morning as an unbeliever, and you've been a restless wanderer spiritually running from God, if you don't turn from your sins and trust in God, that's what you're running to. That's what you're running to, friend. And I don't want you to run there. And the solution is is for you to not keep running from God, but to run to Him. How ironic it is, safety from God is found in God. So take refuge in Him. Instead of having Jesus fight against you as a rebel, why not receive Him as the Lord who fights for His people? Jesus, the great warrior, the mighty general, the one who is stronger and more courageous than Joshua ever was, went into battle against the enemies of God's people. I'm not talking about Pharaoh in Egypt. I'm not talking about the Canaanites, but a greater threat, the satanic powers and principalities that first seduced Adam and Eve away from God and, and, and his rest. 
uh, the dark spiritual forces that have held all of humanity in bondage and, and captivity to sin and death. Jesus came to crush those enemies, and he did it by letting himself be mortally struck on the cross. What kind of general wins the battle by falling on his own sword? Who does that? And yet it had to happen that way because God is a God of justice. Somebody has got to take the sword of justice for our sins. But because God is also a God of mercy, Jesus, the strong and courageous one, took the sword himself. You see, it is on the cross that the sin of restless wanderers like you and me were put on him and punished in him. And having enjoyed perfect fellowship and peace and rest with God the Father in eternity past, Jesus on the cross drank the cup of God's wrath, endured the fiery judgment, and experienced broken fellowship and no rest as as he and his soul suffered the pain and restless exile and torment of the sinner, and he did it in place of the sinner as a substitute, paying the price for sin, paying the debt owed God so that we might at long last have rest in our souls as we who believe in Jesus are brought back into a right relationship with God. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 says that God through Jesus reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus brings peace and rest to the weary soul now that will give way to an even greater experience of rest to come. As hell is eternal restlessness, exiled forever from the good land, then heaven must be eternal rest, forever dwelling in the good land. And this is the journey that all of God's people are on. In fact, Jesus, in one of his sermons, anticipates this when he, when he quotes this, that, that great eschatological psalm of David, but he quotes it with a twist. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit not the land, but the earth. The scope of what's going on is much bigger than a tiny strip of land in the Middle East. It's the whole earth, which includes Canaan, but also much more. This is why Romans 4 says that the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir not just to Canaan, but to the whole world. And he tells us in Galatians 3 that it is those of faith, those who trust in Jesus, those are the ones who are the offspring of Abraham and heirs to the promises of God. That means heirs to the whole world. And so, Israel's past experiences in the land were never meant to be the end-all, be-all, but were meant to serve as a shadow pointing to something even better. Indeed, when you read the book of Revelation and you turn to the end of, the, uh, end of your Bibles, we, we catch a glorious glimpse of our promised land, where the Apostle John writes that, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. So much for heaven being boring. It's not boring. It's beautiful. And we're not floating on clouds with harps. We're on earth. The, 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 the earth has been remade, Scripture teaches. The, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, plants itself on earth. It'll be real. It'll be tangible. It'll be, it'll be physical. Uh, more real and solid, maybe even than the chairs that you're sitting in. Glorious resurrection bodies with no more sickness or pain. I know some of you are greatly looking forward to that. But the best part about it is the best part that was in the garden that the dwelling place of God is with man, where we will enjoy God's presence with pleasures forevermore. But it'll actually be better than the garden because Revelation 22 tells us that no longer will there be anything accursed. Nothing accursed will slither its way into this land to threaten to snatch us away from God's loving hand. So in light of the glorious promises that God has given us, the author of Hebrews says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And we strive to enter that rest by trusting and following God's man, Jesus, as he leads us into the land of promise because he is faithful. It's one of the main points of the whole story of redemption, that a faithful God saves faithless people. It's one of the main points of the book of Joshua. Near the the end of the book, The book of Joshua, we're told that not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed, all came to pass. Spoiler, if you haven't read Joshua. God is not only a promise-making God, He's a promise-keeping God. And every promise that He makes to you will come to pass. He hasn't promised you military conquests, but He has promised salvation, that'll never forsake you, that'll never leave you, that he'll provide for you, that'll strengthen you, that he'll give you rest now and a greater rest later. Other people are not reliable. If it were up to me to save you, guess what? You're a goner. You're dead. If it's all on you, you're already lost. And the book of Joshua will remind us that we don't place our hope in man. We instead look to Jesus, the God-man, We look to His promises, and in them we find hope, and in His faithfulness we can rest, and as we follow Him, we can rest assured that He will lead us safely back home. He is faithful. He is the one who saves. Let's pray.